This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. When it rains, it pours, folks. And in the case of Donald Trump, there's a legal tsunami heading his way of epic fucking proportions. The Guardian is reporting that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie T. Willis is preparing a whopper of a case that will include a racketeering charge. Sources say to expect an indictment as soon as August. The case will be predicated on two qualifying crimes that will show a pattern of racketeering activity. And these include statutes relating to influencing witnesses and computer trespass, the sources say. The first charge will likely be connected with Trump's aggressive pressure campaign against Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find him 11,780 votes. While the computer trespass charge stems from defendants using a computer or network without authority to interfere with a program or data, that would include the breach of voting machines in neighboring Coffee County, The Guardian says. The breach of voting machines involved a group of Trump operatives paid by the then batshit insane Trump lawyer, Sidney released the Kraken Powell. I mean, what a bunch of fucking morons. They allegedly broke into voting machines at the county's election office and went ahead and copied sensitive voting system data as part of an absurd and illegal effort to prove the 2020 election had been rigged. I mean, good job, fellas. I mean, now you're going to go to fucking prison. So I'll tell you what, I hope it was worth it. The Georgia News comes on top of details surrounding the target letter that was sent to Trump's legal team last week. The letter mentioned three criminal statutes in the grand jury investigation regarding Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. Two of these statutes include conspiracy to defraud the government and obstruction of an official proceeding. But a third surprise statute cited in the letter included Section 241 of Title 18 of the United States Code, which makes it a crime to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him or her by the Constitution or laws of the United States. After the Civil War, Congress passed this statute to allow federal agents with a means to pursue Southern whites, including members of the Ku Klux Klan, who resorted to terrorism to hinder formerly enslaved African Americans from voting. However, in modern times, it had been applied more widely, even encompassing cases involving voting fraud conspiracies. So these are just the crimes outlined in the target letter. More charges could be added onto the indictment. The New York Times is reporting that the subpoenas issued by Smith and his team indicate that the special counsel is analyzing Trump's political action committee, Save America, for potential wire fraud after the PAC went out and bu- get, a, get a load of this shit, raised a whopping fucking $250 million. 250 million by lying to its donors that it needed to secure funds to combat election fraud. The House January 6th committee also acknowledged how only a day after the election took place, Trump and his inner circle repeatedly asked donors to send money to a defense fund and challenge election results in court. The special counsel's team is building a sprawling case focused on how Trump acted in the days after the election and whether the former president criminally conspired to block the certification of Joe Biden's victory in Congress. Simultaneously, the special counsel is probing whether, as part of a scheme, Trump allegedly pressured Republicans in states to send fake slates of electors saying that he won and urged officials and governors to take fraudulent actions to make it seem as though there was a basis for overturning a Biden victory in their states. So now in New York, meanwhile, a judge said that Trump could not switch the venue of his Manhattan criminal trial for allegedly paying hush money to silence a former porn star with whom he had an affair. So Trump is also facing two more civil lawsuits in New York, both of which could go to trial next year. Actually, I believe one of them starts March of 2024. 
And the document's case has been given a trial date of May 2024 by Judge Aileen Cannon, who rejected Trump's request to delay the case until after the 2024 election. America's favorite political reality show is about to get even more ridiculous. I mean, I think we should call it Orange Jesus Professional Perp. I mean, how's he going to be able to balance six separate trials? And to be honest, it's beyond me. But the reality is that if he's found guilty in just one of them, that he could likely spend the rest of his natural life behind bars, or as I truly believe, certainly on home confinement. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is none other than Neil Katyal, the former Obama administration solicitor general of the United States, as well as New York Times bestselling author of Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. In addition, Neil runs one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world, where he occupies the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts. From a legal perspective, the man is an absolute heavy hitter and one of the sharpest minds that we've had on the show to date. He has orally argued 43 cases before the Supreme Court with 41 of them in the last decade. At the age of 50, he has already argued more Supreme Court cases in United States history than any other minority attorney, breaking the record of Thurgood Marshall. So make sure to check out as well his new podcast called Courtside, where each and every week Neil discusses a major Supreme Court case with a non-lawyer guest. This week, it's all about the prosecution of presidents and the landmark Morrison v. Olson. And he does it with comedian John Mulaney, who's joining the proceedings as it goes on. So he joins us today on Mea Culpa to unpack the target letter and discuss the myriad ways that Trump will likely end up behind bars. I mean, if you're not fascinated, well, I don't know what will make you. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Neil, let's start today by discussing the target letter that was sent to Donald Trump. Can you do me a favor and can you unpack for my listeners how each of the potential charges applies to Trump and his actions? Because I understand that there are three of them. Yeah. So first of all, uh, Michael, uh, a target letter is not something that is um, required before an indictment. It's something that the Justice Department typically sends to someone to say, look, you are someone we are looking at as not just the subject of the investigation, but the person who possibly engaged in serious criminal wrongdoing. And sometimes those target letters specify specific statutes that have been violated. We haven't actually seen the actual text of the target letter, but there are reports that it includes three offenses. One, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Second, the obstruction of an official proceeding. And third, what's called a Section 241 charge for conspiring against to deprive someone of civil rights. And the first two, Michael, are ones that we knew about for a long time. The January 6th committee goes into detail. Judge David Carter, a very respected federal judge in uh, California a year ago, concluded that it was more likely than not that Donald Trump committed those offenses. So he committed conspiracy to defraud the United States by taking all of the money and time and resources that the federal government spent into running an election and trying to throw the election results out through you know, fake elector plots and the like. And the obstruction of the official proceeding charge, it's not obstruction of justice, which is the usual criminal charge, but rather a specialized statute that says that if you are trying to uh, prevent some official proceeding, often it's a court proceeding from taking place, uh, then that's a separate crime. Here, the official proceeding is perhaps the most solemn day for our government uh, every four years, which is the counting of the votes but in, in the Congress and the naming of the next president. And obviously, that was to take place on January 6th. It did take place on January 6th late at night, um, even though Trump fomented um, the attack on the Capitol. But nonetheless, that is the second crime. 
The third one is this Section 241, conspiring against civil rights, this idea, and it goes all the way back to the Ku Klux Klan. Indeed, it's called the Ku Klux Klan Act. And it's all about basically saying, if you are trying to engage in, with other people in some attempt to prevent people from, for example, voting, that's a separate crime. So the Justice Department sends this target letter to Donald, right? And of course, the, as you said, the Justice Department defines a target as a person as to whom the prosecutor or the grand jury has substantial evidence linking him or her to the commission of a crime and who in the judgment of the prosecutor is a putative de uh, defendant. Now, the purpose of notifying this target of the status, right, is to afford him or her an opportunity to come in and to testify before the grand jury. Now, I think you'll agree with me that Trump is not going to come in and he's not going to testify before a grand jury, but not certainly before this grand jury. You agree with that? Oh, I agree. And I think actually the time period has already elapsed because I think he got the letter on Sunday and it gave him four days. And you know, no one's surprised that Donald Trump didn't go in to talk to the grand jury because he does have counsel and any counsel that has any degree of competence would not let that man go before a grand jury because you'd have to worry he's going to perjure himself. Oh, that's a guarantee. Forget about that. <laughs> worry about it. That's a, that's a fact. All right. Trump then responds back that he believes that the letter means that he will be indicted, this time for a third, a third time. You have, this will be, what, the second federal as well as the one state, the one that I'm involved with, with Alvin Bragg. And then again, he goes on because he has to demean, disparage, denigrate the entire process. Forget about just Jack Smith. He has to demean the entire process. See, for anybody else, it's okay as long as it's not Donald Trump. And he alleges that this whole thing is part of a scheme created by President Joe Biden and his administration, all within which to target Trump. Because he's Joe Biden's number one political opponent. And he goes on to say that he's dominating him for the race for the presidency. How do you possibly respond to something like this? Michael, it's absolutely preposterous. And, um, you know, let's start with the claim that Biden is behind the prosecution of Donald Trump, both the already uh, filed indictment for him, Donald Trump stealing documents and putting them at Mar-a-Lago, and for the investigation and possible indictment about January 6th. The person who's doing this investigation and prosecuting at the federal level is a guy, as you mentioned, named Jack Smith. Jack Smith is an independent career federal prosecutor, and he was appointed under special counsel guidelines, guidelines that I drafted when I was a young Justice Department staffer in 1999. And those guidelines provide for an independent investigation by an independent person. So put most simply, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, has nothing to do with the indictment decisions that are being made today. And Joe Biden certainly doesn't. And you know, here's the thing, both of those guys are smart and they understand that the surest way kill an investigation or prosecution into Trump is for either of them to be mucking around and interfering with what Jack Smith has done. And so I've gone into a lot of detail about the way in which the special counsel regulations operate in my new podcast this week. My podcast is called Courtside and it's, uh, you know, you can get it anywhere and sign up mm -hmm. on Substack. But And I uh, certainly recommend that everybody goes and listens to it. It's, um, it's going to be fabulous. That I can assure you. Uh, thank you. But this week, we, uh, I, you know, each week I bring a different guest on who's a non-lawyer to talk about a single case. And this week just happens to be John Mulaney, the comedian, talking in really serious terms about how to investigate and prosecute a president and the difference between the special counsel regulations, the independent counsel, which is what Ken Starr was, and ordinary Justice Department processes. And the most important lesson from that long hour, you know, basically almost hour long discussion is this central point that Trump is absolutely wrong. 
when he says Biden's responsible for this or Garland's responsible for this. Not true at all. Not true. And indeed, if it were true, these individuals, you know, Biden and Garland would be tanking the prosecution and they're too smart to do that. So I'll tell you how I see it, because <laughs> fuck it. It's my show. I may as well tell you how I see it, right? You do it on yours, which, again, it's um, going to be fabulous. What I believe is that Trump is deflecting because that's just what he does. He's deflecting. And I think the best way to start with proving that that's what he's doing is let's just go to the definition of what deflecting is. What does it mean when a person is deflecting? And deflection happens when we redirect the focus, blame, or criticism away from ourselves in an attempt to preserve our self-image and avoid dealing with negative consequences. That's my book, Revenge. You know, Neil, I've had you on this program before. We've talked about this both on the program, offline. How many times did I have to turn around and say to my listeners, to the American people, whoever it might be that's willing to listen, that this is what Donald Trump does. In fact, if you look at my book, Revenge, and I ask everybody to buy it, read it, it will give you a forensic dissection into the most corrupt prosecution against an American. But look at even what I put on as the title, Revenge. How Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. What is it that Donald Trump has been saying here? That Joe Biden and his administration have been weaponized to go up against Joe Biden's number one, right? His number one uh, nemesis in terms of keeping the office of the presidency. And that's Donald Trump. It is pure deflection. That's all that he is, because Donald Trump knows exactly what he did with a willing and complicit attorney general, Bill Barr, and he should not be let off the hook, by the way. And I hate it when I see him on television and people give him some kudos for coming out. Fuck it. He should have come out long time ago. He should sit down before a committee. He should sit down before an interview and spill everything that they did together, including an unconstitutional remand of a United States citizen against, you know, be, because Donald Trump was against me, that I was a critic. Yeah. That's what Bill Barr should do. Donald believes that everyone is as corrupt as he is, but not in this case. Yeah, and I don't know, you would know him, I, I don't, but I mean, I don't know that he even believes other people are corrupt. I mean, this whole deflection strategy is just an attempt to focus on everyone else, regardless of whether they actually did anything wrong or not, just to take the blame off himself. And it reminds me of, you know, a conversation I have with a five-year-old, you know, you say to the five-year-old, you know, you spilled your cereal or something, clean it up. And they'll say, well, you know, didn't you spill your milk yesterday or whatever? And it's just like, you know, change the subject to something else. And um, that is his entire legal defense. You're absolutely right, Michael. And that is why yeah, but like, you don't hear him with any actual real defense of how you can steal documents and bring them to your golf club, except his claim that, well, they're mine, which is insane and preposterous. Um, you don't hear any real defense of what he did on January 6th, sitting on his hands for over three hours while the Capitol was under, under attack. You know, how can anyone justify that, you know, fail, you know, failure to act, if not outright actual encouragement of the insurrection? Um, and so instead, he's always pointing to, he's like, look left, look right, look this, look down. Um, but never can he actually take the mirror and apply it to himself. And I'm sure internally, psychologically, that's probably how he is as well. I mean, he's an illusionist, right? Look here, look here. But he really, where he doesn't want you to look, as you just, is straightforward. But then he does something else. He then goes ahead and he starts reaching out to his supporters. 
not just on Truth Social when he turns around and you know he's grifting. Oh my God, they're coming after your favorite president once again, right? And next thing you know, you get fifty emails from everyone. They're coming after my father, right? You know, you get Don Jr. There, we're coming after my father, and then you end up getting guys like Kevin McCarthy and um, Elise Stefanik, and they're all now jumping on television in order to defend their Fuhrer, right? What the fuck is wrong with these people? I mean, I don't know a nicer way to put it, right? Seriously, there has to be something fundamentally wrong when you know that you're full of shit, you're willing to go on television, whether it's Fox with Hannity, whether it's Newsmax or OAN or on Untruth Social, or you go on any one of these programs and you're spewing Donald Trump's deflection, you're spewing Donald Trump's lies, and you're regurgitating a narrative that you know is just not true, but yet they do it anyway. Yeah. What are they thinking here? Yeah, I think it's, um, Michael, something really deep and dangerous. And it's kind of what I think of as the the end of many people putting um, country over party or country over principle. It's this kind of tribal idea that in, uh, that uh, that basically, you know, we're always right. They're always wrong. They're Marxists out to destroy the United States and so on. And that's why I think the voices of the kind of never Trump Republicans has been so important because it just underscores something that basically, you know, my parents instilled in me from birth, which is the country, what it stands for is far more important than your own individual political preferences. And you should always be thinking about that first. And I do think that we've had leader after leader that did so. I mean, I was so privileged to be on Al Gore's Supreme Court team back in Bush versus Gore in 2000. And as heartbroken as we were on those last days, um, you know, he did the right thing. He thought it was the right thing from, the, you know, right away when he understood where the, what, what, what had happened and just conceded. He didn't just, you know, call it a fake election and, you know, try and encourage people to go and attack the Capitol or any of that nonsense. He just said, here, it's the most important thing for the country. It's much more important than I am or what I want to do. Um, and unfortunately, there's a strain in our society that is that Trump gives aid and comfort to, which says that's not the way to think about America. The way to think about it is just raw power and you know, getting it and seizing it and attacking your opponents and demonizing them. Yeah, but then again, let me go right back to Kevin McCarthy and Stefanik. These two assholes start going all over the news and again, carrying Donald's water. McCarthy turns around and tells reporters, well, I guess under a Biden administration, Biden America, you'd expect this. If you noticed, recently President Trump went up in the polls and was actually surpassing President Biden for re-election. I mean, it's nice that McCarthy calls him President Biden, right? I mean, at least at least he's not that fucking insane. So what do they do now? Weaponize government. Go right back to the title of my book, right after what I put out there, right? Go after their number one opponent. It's time and time again. I think the American people are tired of this. They want to have, see, equal justice. And the idea that they utilize this to go after those who politically disagree with them is wrong. Now, use everything that Kevin McCarthy just said, compare it to what we've already been talking about for the last few minutes, right, that Donald Trump said, compare it to what I turned around and said about deflection and the weaponization of the administration to go after a critic. And isn't it everything that was saying, Neil? Isn't this plain and pure deflection on bullshit? Yeah, so it's deflection combined with sheer cowardice um, among the people that you're mentioning and others. Um, and it's so surprising to me because when I was growing up, and I've been a Democrat for most of my life, but I certainly thought the Republicans had principle. You know, I thought Ronald Reagan as much as I disagreed with him, I thought he was a principled person who put the country first. And you look at the current leadership um, of that party and you you know have to think that Reagan will be turning over in his grave. There are so few people 
who actually held spoke truth to power in that party. I mean, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, like, and we're going to exhaust the list in about another four seconds. Um, and that, to me, is really well. They well, and, and they too got shit canned. <laughs> exactly, and so that to me, and what happened to them, is a really terrifying prospect that we only have one functioning political party in this country that actually cares about democracy and the preservation of the union. And then Stefana comes out and she says, again, they're like a bunch of fucking puppets. They just they just mimic what Donald Trump says, because here's what happens. They send out talking points memos. They did it during the campaign to anybody that was going to go on television and talk. These are the talking points that we want. When I testified before the House Oversight Committee, did anybody not wonder how interesting it was that every single Republican used the same buzzwords when they were referring to me and they had their five minutes? So here's what Stefanik says. We have yet again another example of Joe Biden's weaponized Department of Justice targeting his top political opponent, Donald Trump. I mean, it's just a shorter, equally as stupid statement as McCarthy made. It's the same thing. It's the same talking point over and over and over again. Because let me tell you what Donald Trump truly does believe. And he's convinced a whole bunch of Republicans that they need to believe it also. The more that you repeat the lie, the more people listen to that lie, and the more the people will accept the lie and make the lie the truth. That's his ideology. Yeah, no, I agree with a lot a lot of that. I mean, it's almost like the original deep fake here is just taking a lie, repeating it over and over again, and then it becomes something much closer to reality. And that's, of course, what's happened with January 6th. I mean, in the days after January 6th, the immediate days, you know, Trump was condemned by everyone, including your favorite, Kevin McCarthy, Michael, um, and, you know, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham said, you know, I've had enough, I'm out. All these people spoke out against Trump. And then Trump just kept on shamelessly repeating his lies about January 6th, bending, you know, the perception of reality to the point where now all those people have come back to him in one form or another. And, you know, the idea that we can't in this country get the other major political party to agree that what Trump did on January 6th was a disgrace, was criminal, was un-American, was undemocratic. That's uh, beyond me. I can't figure it out. Yeah, me neither. And what I can't figure out is how is it only, according to the polls, that Biden, who represents honesty and decency and sensitivity and empathy and, you know, country over party, how is it that he's only winning by like five points? Yeah. With a plus or minus uh, margin of error of six points. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, it's crazy. Right. And to me, the issue is not as much, is not really Biden. It's, you know, this is, should be evaluated Trump and his actions on his own terms. It doesn't matter who, you know, the political rival is or anything. You just look at this person and you say, is this really someone we want to be president of anything? I mean, I wouldn't want this guy to be president of my bowling league. I mean, he'd cheat. Um, so, um, uh, to me, the focus has to always be on Donald Trump and his actions and not on, you know, what other politician might or might not do certain things. So, you know, you brought up, obviously, when I asked you about the three charges, one of the charges, Section 241 of um, Title 18 uh, to the U.S. Code, and to make it a crime for people to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise of enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Now, you went on to say that, you know, there's a history um, to this statute, and you referred to it as the Ku Klux Klan statute. Could you do me a favor and just unpack some of this again for my listeners? Sure. Including how it applies today to what Trump did in attempting to overthrow the 2020 election, as well as instigating January 6th. Yeah. So basically, you know, after the Civil War, 
uh, and during Reconstruction, there were a lot of attempts to uh, stop uh, the progress that had been made. And often that took the form of people conspiring in an organized fashion like the Ku Klux Klan to deprive people of rights, including the right to vote. And so they would physically block polling places, they would intimidate uh, people from voting and scare African-Americans, say, if you vote, you know, you were gonna go after your kids or whatever. And so uh, section 241 of the criminal code was passed in order to make that a crime. And what it does is it makes it unlawful for two or more people to agree to threaten or intimidate a person in the United States from exercising any right that they're guaranteed under the Constitution. And the 15th Amendment, of course, guarantees uh, abridgment, uh, guarantees you can't have your vote abridged on account of race and so on. And the Justice Department has been using this statute uh, for over 100 years when you have instances like that, when you've got people agreeing to stop, uh, you know, for example, people from voting. And so that's one of the things that Jack Smith is looking at, according to the target letter. So then of these three potential charges that the former president is currently facing, which one do you think will most likely produce a conviction? Because that's really what everybody is waiting to see. Or is this just once again performative theater? You know, so many Democrats who I'm friendly with, that's what they think this whole shit is. And the Republicans are adamant about it. This is merely performative theater. Oh, it's the Republicans. You know, uh, the Democrats are getting up onto their mantle now, right? Uh, to be or not to be, right? And then they just go on, uh, they're a bunch of thespians. And the Republicans are lapping this thing up, thinking that this is a fucking joke, that... Here we go again. It's another impeachment trial. It's another action against Donald Trump. So far, what's happened with the Alvin Bragg case? What's happened even with Tish James's civil case? What's happened with, you know, this? Why, uh, ha why hasn't uh, Fannie Willis filed her indictment yet? And the Republicans have a way of distorting. It's like, it's like toffee, right? Where they just stretch it and it doesn't want to break. <laughs> Which one will produce a conviction? So, Michael, the answer is D, all of the above. So I think each nice three statutes <laughs> that are in the target letter, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, and the Section 241 conspiracy charge, all of them are incredibly strong. That's what uh, federal district court judge David Carter has already found with respect to Trump. And there's a lot more evidence that Jack Smith has that we haven't even seen yet. So with respect nice. to this idea that this is all political theater and the like, I know that's what Donald Trump is trying to do, is turn this into theater and, you know, with his social media and so on. But, Michael, there's a big difference between all the things that have happened and all the things that are going to happen now, and that is a formal criminal trial. And in that formal criminal trial, Donald Trump can't just say, look left, look right, look up, look down. The criminal trial will be focused on him and his actions. And it's going to take place in an orderly courtroom with ordinary rules of evidence and procedure. And so far, Trump has not been able to articulate any sort of legal defense. He's got political defenses, which may work on the cameras outside the courtroom. But these things are heading to a courtroom soon. And makes it, you know, a very different thing than all the theater that's happened earlier. But I will tell you one thing that Donald has done and done effectively. He's managed to hold off everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, almost everybody, certainly Alvin Bragg. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Alvin's case uh, take place a year earlier when he first became the DA. That's a whole nother story there. Everyone's concerned that by the time Jack Smith's case comes to trial, we're going to be knee deep into the campaign. Yeah. It's going to be potentially right before election. And there is that unwritten rule that you do not do anything that could have political consequences, that it could alter the outcome of an election, 
That's the big problem that's here. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you that there will be a conviction or all three of these matters will ultimately produce a conviction. But the problem is what happens if it's the date of the trial is so close to election day and now all of a sudden they're holding off again? Yeah. Then what? So I think, first of all, the 60-day informal Justice Department rule, I think is really about like launching an indictment right before a uh, criminal, right before a presidential election, something like that. I don't think it's going to apply here. This indictment, um, you know, the Mar-a-Lago one has already been announced. The January 6th one, to the extent there is one from Jack Smith, is going to be announced soon, possibly this week. Uh, so I don't think the 60-day rule is going to be a problem. I do think you're right to say that Donald Trump has one play in his legal playbook, and it's delay, delay, delay. And he's hoping that he can push all of these trials off until after the election, and then he can pardon himself or just order the Justice Department to drop at least the federal uh, charges against him once he's president. Uh, and so that's his playbook. But I think that it's hard for that playbook to operate here. There are multiple different criminal trials now. There's the Mar-a-Lago federal one. There's the January 6th possible federal one. There's the New York one that you're involved in by the Manhattan District Attorney. There's also potentially one in Georgia. And the very fact that this judge, Judge Cannon, delayed the trial to May of 24 for the stolen Mar-a-Lago documents case that just opens up more space for a trial in D.C. Uh, to take place about January 6th at some point before it, because that case is a very simple case. It doesn't involve classified information and the like, and it can easily go to trial in December. So there's a way in which, while I know Trump was celebrating that the trial was delayed to May on Mar-a-Lago, I think that's actually bad news for him because it means there's a bunch of months for mm -hmm. the January 6th trial to take place of Donald Trump in a Washington, D.C. courtroom. Yeah, and look, you're, you're right. Um, no matter what happens, he cannot federally pardon himself from the Alvin Bragg case. That's a state case. And that case is going to trial March of 2024, which is great. It's like eight months before Election Day. So there's plenty of time for that case, not to mention, I know everybody says, yeah, you know, look, the Mar-a-Lardo document case, it's much more significant than campaign finance and business records, as is, of course, January 6th, as is, of course, um, trying to overturn a free and fair election and all of this other stuff. When you start handicapping, yeah, I would say it is the least of the four sets or five sets of charges that will be um, against former President Trump. However, it's still a crime. And just because it's less of a crime doesn't mean that you ignore it. I think Alvin Bragg's case is going to be the first one that actually convicts Trump because the information is easy to understand. The documentary evidence is irrefutable. The testimony corroborates the documents and the documents corroborate the testimony of multiple people. So while people were laughing about the Alvin Bray, ah, it's bullshit, it's sticky tack, it's small, it's this, it's a crime. And I think enough is enough already, but that brings on a whole host of other problems. But I did want to ask you, why do you think that Jack Smith didn't bring an insurrection charge? Well, we don't know. He still very well may bring that insurrection charge. The target letter, letter mentions three possible statutes, but target letters, as I said at the outset, don't have to mention every possible statute. So it could be that he brings an insurrection charge in the end, and obviously insurrection describes very much what Donald Trump uh, is alleged to have done on January 6th and in the days leading up to January 6th. And I want to make one other point, Michael, about what you said about the evidence that Bragg has in the case you're involved in and how overwhelming it is and easy to understand. Um, I think that's largely right. The one caution I'd make is, of course, these are now going to a formal criminal process, a criminal trial. 
And that's different than you and I discussing this evidence and the like. There are all sorts of rules of evidence that are going to apply. There's a legal standard, the highest standard in the law that the prosecution has to show in order to find Donald Trump guilty, and that's called beyond a reasonable doubt. And what that means is it can't just be like more likely than not that Donald Trump committed mm -hmm. the crime that Bragg's ind indicted him for, but it's got to be really, really certain. And then the prosecutors in all these cases, whether it's Jack Smith or Alvin Bragg or Fannie Willis, they all have to show this to a jury of 12 people and convince all 12 of them. If one of them says Donald Trump didn't do it, then Donald Trump cannot be convicted. So when you hear Donald Trump talk about how unfair the process is and stacked against him, that's the process. It's the American criminal justice system, one of the most you know, pro-defendant ways of designing a system on this planet. And yet still, Trump is afraid of facing the music in that courtroom. Sure. And that's, of course, unless you're facing the Southern District of New York that wants to put a gun to your wife's head, right? And then turn around and tell you to plead guilty. Otherwise, they can indict her as well, right? I mean, you know, our, our system, while it may be the best that's out there, and I agree with you on that, the system is designed to be the best. The problem is the abuses that go on inside the, you know, inside the system. None worse than when you have a president of the United States who weaponizes a Justice Department using a willing and complicit attorney general to do so. And that's the danger of the destruction of democracy. That's exactly right, Michael. And so that's a really important point. Like what, you know, and I, I don't know the, I'm not familiar with the details of your case, but certainly it's been documented that the Trump Justice Department was not applying the ordinary rule book and was going after Trump's enemies in all sorts of ways, the ways that any career prosecutor of the Justice Department would have, you know, rebelled against. But they he picked his, you know, inside team of people who would do his dirty work. That is not the way the Justice Department operates day in and day out. I've been there in two different administrations. I never saw anything like that. Um, you know, and so uh <laughs> The Trump, the, the, the Justice Department that Trump is facing is actually the special counsel one, which is independent of Garland, independent of Biden, and doing this as a career prosecutor. And so it's the opposite of the kind of treatment that uh, Trump doled out to his enemy. Yeah. So can we go back for one quick second, because we we're talking about the Mar-a-Lardo document case. And according to Eileen Cannon, that there, you know, the, the date will be May 24th of 2024. And as I said, that's smack in the middle of primary season, right? Now, I acknowledge what everything that you're saying is 100% correct, that you know, it's different, that it should not um, have any effect upon it because they're not bringing indictment, they're just now um, it's trial. But the idea that he could stand trial while running for president, to me, is absolutely nuts. I mean, I find it abhorrent. How do you well, see all of this playing out, right? I mean, if you would, because you have tremendous knowledge in this. Yeah. How do you see it all playing out if he runs for election, which we know that he needs to in order to escape prison, right, or at least a home confinement scenario, tries to stay out of prison using this, and then, of course, appeals to his, to his base, which is not an inconsequential number, claiming that this is all Biden coming after him. You cannot convince these people that what he's saying is not true. Right. So it's a powerful tell, Michael, that Donald Trump is continuing to run even though he's facing indictment after indictment. Because the normal honorable thing that any leader does, even a leader that doesn't have a lot of honor, but when they're accused of something, is to say, well, the institution I'm representing is more important than I am and my own personal needs, so I'm going to step aside. Like the Stanford University president just did this this last week and facing some allegations. Um, that's the way responsible leaders behave. For Trump, never even occurred to him to do that. No, he just doubles down, going to run, and so on. 
I don't have a legal problem with him running. I mean, that is, you know, he has not been formally found guilty in any court. And until he's found guilty, he is entitled to the presumption of innocence. That's part of our legal system and all of the rights that American citizens enjoy. So he should be able to run. I just think that it shows an appalling lack of judgment. I mean, it's example 1,046 1, just this week on appalling judgment mm -hmm. from Donald Trump. But but nonetheless, you know, I, I don't have a problem legally once uh, until he's convicted. Now, when he's convicted, I think all things change. First of all, the 14th Amendment prevents someone who's been accused, actually may have been convicted of, of insurrection from running for office, and he very well may be. And secondly, there's a whole question about whether convicted felons can run for office uh, at all. No, 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 no. That's actually that I, that's actually already been um, discussed, right? Because people have convicted people like myself. If I wanted to run for the presidency, there is nothing in the Constitution that would prevent me from what you call it, even even if I was still in Otisville, I could actually be president of the United States while incarcerated. There is nothing in the Constitution that prevents a felon from running for federal office. Well, there, there's a little more of a debate about that, uh, Michael, because the argument is that if felons can't vote um, because of statutes, then they can't be voted for. That the right to vote. I, is I, I vote. I, I vote. I voted in in primaries. I voted in the election. Uh, I'm a felon. Yeah. So it just and I'm I'm entitled to vote. It just depends on it, it depends. Anyway, there's an open debate about that. My my point is just simply that uh, you know that all of these things about whether or not um, there's a legal barrier right now to Trump uh, running for office. I think uh, there is no legal barrier. Certainly not now. And as you say, may not be even if he's convicted. It depends on the crime for which he's convicted, of course. Yeah. So let's discuss for a moment the push by certain factions within the GOP, because this came out the other day. And once again, I was appalled by it. I really was to expunge Trump's impeachment from the congressional record. Now, first of all, I don't think such a thing is even possible. I'm, I, I, I don't understand. How, what do you do? You go back in time and erase from everybody's memory the various impeachment trials and the ultimate determination? And second, will Kevin McCarthy actually go through with the action? Because he must know that he will be ridiculed beyond ridiculed if he does so. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a bunch of politicians trying to kiss Donald Trump's ring. And um, this is all show um, and theater and has no substance to it. In order for it to have substance, you'd have to defeat the allegations in the Mueller report, which are very detailed and show that Donald Trump committed uh, upwards of 10 different crimes. Um, so, you know, whether or not they'll try and make a bunch of noise, whatever, but you can't erase the report. The report stands. It's never been uh, disproven. You know, Donald Trump tried to get it disproven. He, in fact, hired a whole new special counsel in the form of uh, John Durham to try and investigate all of the origins of this. Durham tried his best uh, to, to, to do that. Indeed, running himself two different federal criminal trials, indicting people for what he called fake evidence and the like, Turned out he lost both of those trials, which is, <laughs> right. you know, really hard to do if you're a federal prosecutor. I mean, I don't know if a federal prosecutor, maybe I know one I've ever met who lost a criminal trial. I don't know of anyone who's lost two, um, because by the time you bring a criminal case, um, you know, in, as I said, it has such a high standard against the prosecution in terms of beyond a reasonable doubt and the unanimous jury uh, requirement. If you bring a prosecution, it better be rock solid. And those Durham ones were definitely not. So I want to go back to Donald for a quick second, because whether you like him or you hate him, actually more like if you hate him, you have to acknowledge that Trump is more popular now than ever with his MAGA base. And that scares me for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, what it really goes to show me is that the latent racism that exists in this country is far greater than what any of us suspected. That's how I see it. But I say this because with each new charge or target letter, 
the motherfucker manages to get out there and raise record amounts of money. He's raising more money after an indictment, after a target letter, than he did without the indictment or the target letter. And he was raising a ton of money back then too. So, Neil, what does this say to you that he has actually figured out how to politicize the criminal process and to use it for his financial benefit? This says one really important thing to me, Michael, and basically it underscores to me that the criminal trials that Donald Trump is facing, both federal and state, have to be televised in real time for the American public to see everything that's happening for their own eyes. Judge Cannon, who's presiding over the stolen documents case from Mar-a-Lago, has so far been not, not just afraid of cameras in the courtroom, she's afraid of audio in the courtroom as well, and not allowing anyone to hear her voice. We have to just get written cold transcripts days later. Um, that is thoroughly unacceptable. Um, and you know these are trials that are taking place in courtrooms that are paid for by American taxpayers. And uh, the American people have an absolute right to see everything that goes on in that courtroom. And there's a mechanism to do that with the Chief Justice of the United States approving the television, televised trial here. I think that should absolutely happen. Um, and if it doesn't happen, Donald Trump will use the lack of vision into the courtroom to sow, sow more disinformation uh, akin to what you're talking about. But Neil, you know that transparency, especially in government, is almost non-existent, whether it's the fighting for FOIA documents like I'm doing. You know, I, I have a request in. One year ago, the judge turned around and said, you, um, because it's based upon your right, that you should receive it expedited. Okay, one year later, I received the same documents saying, okay, we processed 500 plus documents, but you're receiving none of them. In one full year, I've received none. That was when they said to me that there were no documents. Then I hired Mark Zaid. He goes ahead and he then files documents. They come back and say there's 480,000 documents, but you can't have any of them. You're going to have to keep fighting. I did just want to ask you two more questions if possible here, right? Can you discuss with me and my listeners who you believe special counsel Jack Smith may have flipped as a witness against Trump? I mean, because like if Mark Meadows has gone over, or as Trump would say, to the dark side, right? How devastating do you think that that would be to Trump and to these cases? Very devastating. I don't think that Jack Smith needs Mark Meadows, who was Donald Trump's uh, former chief of staff and chief of staff during January 6th. But uh, if Smith has got him, um, if I'm Trump, and you know, even though Trump has a kind of constitutional incapability to recognize the reality of the situation against him. But you got to understand that if your own former chief of staff is providing evidence to Jack Smith, you are in deep, you know, doo-doo to use the technical legal term. Now, we don't know whether Meadows has flipped. There are definitely some indications that suggest he has, um, but who knows? Um, that's also true about Rudy Giuliani, who didn't receive a target letter this week. And some people are saying that's because he's flipped. I place less stock in that because other people involved in this scheme, like John Eastman, didn't receive a target letter either. And I doubt that John Eastman um, has flipped. Uh, so uh, time will tell, but I think we will know more uh, by the end of this week. So let me ask you then, because we spoke about Georgia. And I want to talk about Georgia for a quick second, because there was a big article in The Guardian that reported on Friday that Fulton County DA Fannie Willis is preparing a sprawling racketeering case against the former president. And the qualifying crimes that form the basis of her case are likely the Brad Raffensperger phone call and the breaking into voting systems by operatives that were hired by Sidney Powell. If you would, can you discuss with us how strong a case that you think that she has and how it will dovetail with the charges being brought by the special counsel? Yeah, so, um, 
it's not surprising that Fannie Willis is looking at racketeering charges. She's an expert in the racketeering statute. She's brought it before as a prosecutor in high-profile cases. And here, of course, there is a lot to suggest that that's what happened, that there was a pattern and practice of people who were bent on suppressing the results of the popular vote and trying to throw it out, maybe appoint fake electors from the state legislators from the state legislatures to uh, say to the electoral college. I mean, this is a Michael, a long-standing Republican play that they wanted to do, um, and the notion is they think that the Constitution says state legislatures can do anything with respect to federal elections, even throw out the popular vote and install their own fake slate of electors. Slate, fake slate of electors. Um, that's actually the Supreme Court case I just argued called Moore versus Harper, in which we won it six to three. The U.S. Supreme Court said there's nothing to this independent state legislature theory. But nonetheless, Trump and his minions were pushing that theory in Georgia. And that is what Fannie Willis is looking at uh, as part of this sprawling racketeering charge. Uh, I suspect okay. that she's going to be coordinating with Jack Smith to make sure that mm -hmm. the timing of her prosecution, if any, doesn't you know run into his. Um, I suspect there'll probably be deference to the federal prosecution to occur first, but all of that can be negotiated among them. Okay, but here's the problem. It's not as if this is new news. I mean, we've been hearing about you know the Fulton County, Georgia case. We certainly listened to the tape of Trump speaking to Brad Raffensperger about the perfect phone call, the 11,781 votes and so on. We've been hearing this for what now? Two and a half years? Mm -hmm. This is not probably some new information that she got. Can you just give me an idea why you think it's taking so long to get this thing started? I mean, this is the problem. It's not supposed to take this long in order to charge somebody with a crime that we all know was committed. Right. No, I agree with you. I think both at the federal and the state level, it's been going very slow. I mean, you compare it to, for example, Sam Bankman Freed and the crypto, crypto scandal of FTX, and that trial is going to start pretty soon, the whole criminal trial. And here we're not even at the indictment stage. Um, and uh, so it has taken a long time, I guess. You know, the point on the other side that we made is if you're going to shoot to kill the king, you can't miss. And so they want to button everything up first. But OK, so what could be negative? What what do you think is just missing from Fannie Willis's case that would stop her from filing the indictment? So I think that it's hard to know because she has evidence and Jack Smith has evidence that we're not privy to. But if you were to look at just what the January 6th committee found, it looks like a very clear instance of obstruction of an official proceeding and a conspiracy. And with respect to the Georgia election, it looks like a bunch of evidence about the fake electors plot. All of that is you know, very strong evidence, but remember, She's got to prove it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt and get all 12. And so if you're sitting in her chair, you want to do everything you possibly can to shore up your story, to make sure that your witnesses are credible, and then present the most convincing case possible. So, Neil, can, um, before we go, because obviously the hour goes by quick, can you just tell me about your podcast again? Tell my listeners. I mean, I, I, want, I want my listeners. First of all, what, when you speak, it's like, for me, you learn so much. Even though you think that you know it, there's always another perspective. And I think that the perspective that you bring you know, to the table. I, can, can I just ask you this? Do you think that the larger MAGA movement will survive if Donald Trump goes to prison? That Do you think it'll get stronger or do you think that it'll die of irrelevance? And I mean, that's just, I just wanted to ask you. And then I just, please tell me about the podcast one last time. Great. So I'm not um, an expert at all in political movements or anything like that. Um, so I don't want to say too much about that. I, I know a lot about courts and I do think that Donald Trump is looking at multiple criminal trials and potentially multiple criminal convictions in the next year. And so if you're Donald Trump, I think you have to be worried. 
Um, my podcast is called Courtside, um, and it is basically each week a look at a single Supreme Court case, and we go into a deep dive in it. And, uh, and it's always with someone who's a non-lawyer, because my whole point is that the Supreme Court should be accessible for non-lawyers, for ordinary Americans, and for people around the world who are just trying to learn about our legal system. And so I take a different guest, like Katie Couric is one week, or Rob Reiner, the Hollywood director, another week. This week, as I said, it's John Mulaney, um, the comedian. Um, in future episodes, I'll have like Amy Schumer and Regina Spector. But basically, we just take a different Supreme Court case each week and go into detail about what it did and why it's so important to our daily lives. Not some like fusty discussion with some boring law professor, but rather really, why does this matter to you? And I also provide all the materials about the case on my website. So you can sign up for the podcast at neilkatyal.substack.com. That's N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And Michael, again, it's always a privilege to be with you. I know you've had quite a harrowing few weeks and um, all of us are all of us are watching with bated breath for the next uh, shoes to drop well it has been one heck of a journey neil you're the greatest thank you my friend and i will definitely be asking you to come back and i'm going to be signing up uh for um for your podcast as well so um hope to see you soon and thank you again And now for today's mea culpa. This week, we watched his legal noose around Trump's neck tighten, likely like never before seen. From every single angle, well, Trump is fucking screwed. And despite all of this, or perhaps because of all of this, Republicans remain in complete and total love with their orange Jesus. I mean, love doesn't go far enough in this case. This is an unholy, obsessive, toxic union. And with each subsequent charge he receives, Trump, rather than be disqualified by the GOP for being a fucking raging lunatic and corrupt scumbag of the highest order who will drag this country to hell with him, well, somehow this fucking asshole grows in popularity. With that, his prospects of winning the 2024 GOP nomination, I mean, it's almost a virtual guarantee. Few, if any of these cases, are likely to be fully resolved before the start of next year's Republican primaries. And Trump's campaign is now explicitly a race not just to retake the Oval Office, but to save himself from criminal conviction. He is in an existential race to save himself, and he will do anything to win. This whole concept is such a sick perversion of democracy that it makes me physically ill. The idea that this man might actually again occupy the White House, I mean, for a second time, it makes me shudder. And if he were to actually win and somehow figure out how to fuck with the Constitution and pardon himself or do whatever he needs to do to close down all the cases against him, he would then be unleashing an unmoored form of control over our country. I mean, Trump, in his ever more apocalyptic rhetoric surrounding his effort to retake the White House, has taken to calling his 2024 race the final battle. I cannot disagree with his assessment. If the GOP won't do anything to stop this monster, well, let me tell you what, my friends, we... We, right here, all of us must do everything in our power to make sure that these cases go to court as expeditiously as possible. I mean, the entirety of our democratic system hangs in the balance, and this is not hyperbole. This is reality. So let's make sure that he ends up where he belongs, in an orange fucking jumpsuit, and not wearing his pink tie parading around the White House, destroying our democracy, and, well, going up against each and every one of his critics in an extremely, extremely long list of people who he has grievances with, including yours truly. And as always, thanks for listening. 
Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mayor.